0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Allison Lecce. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. Brian couldn't be with us today because he is in Egypt at COP27. So instead, I'm joined by Michelle, my colleague over at the Global Donor Platform. And it's great that she's here with us today because we'll be talking all about the platform on this episode.
1: It's great to be here today. On this episode, we revisit our earliest series on the global donor platform for rural development. We hear from five donors who are tackling the sustainable development goals through
0: a platform hosted by eFAD. We also look to the year ahead. We introduce eFAD's new president, Alvaro Lario, and we talk to one of our vice presidents about next year's funding cycle.
1: Later, We'll turn to the issue of gender-based violence in a conversation with a gender expert about violence against women in all levels of society. And we wrap up with a new episode in our series on Bangladesh.
0: Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. Now, let's get into it. This is
1: Farms, Food, Future. I'm Michelle Tang, here with Alison Lecce. As we move into 2023, the world and in particular small-scale farmers in developing countries are on the front line of the climate and cost of living crises.
0: IFAD's new president, Alvaro Lario, is squaring up to face this head-on as he leads IFAD into the future. Brian Thompson sat down with Alvaro to talk about these issues and his plans for the future.
2: Alvaro Lario president of IFAD, thank you very much for joining us on Farms Food Future. It's a pleasure to have you on the programme. First question for you, as as we move into 2023, what do you see as the major issues that IFAD's
3: beneficiaries are going to be dealing with? Thank you very much, Brian, and thank you for having me. I would say what we are seeing currently in our projects is that uh, small farmholders are are actually suffering a cost of living crisis. They cannot afford the increase in fuel, the increase in food, the increase in many of the inputs that they need to plant. So for this current moment, we are already seeing that uh, many of them, they have had to sell their assets, their land, some of their inputs just to feed themselves. For next year, what we are currently seeing or predicting is that the current crisis of affordability, in many cases of fertilizers, will translate into a crisis of availability. If the current crisis and war in Ukraine continues, it's very likely that a lot of the fertilizers that are currently not being produced because of the high prices that we're seeing in fuel and and other components will translate into a lack of availability. If that is the case, probably the situation will will worsen. In that sense, uh, that's probably um, what keeps me up at night, which means that um, many of the small holders will not be able to feed themselves and they will not be able to continue planting. For that, we obviously have uh, set up a series of programs like the crisis response initiative, whereby we are trying to address it through social safety nets, through cash, well, through a series, for example, of uh, vouchers, and ways to actually subsidize in the short term the access to many of these inputs.
2: So you touched there on um, how IFAD is going to address these issues, in particular. Can, can you expand on that a little bit, on, on what IFAD is going to be doing in response?
3: Yes, certainly. So what we are seeing is that actually the way we were designing our programmes over the last years um, has needed to evolve. That means in the past we were thinking about programmes that were actually going to disperse over five, six, seven years Unfortunately, over the last years, we have had a number of crises that have also made us rethink on how we can also attend some of the short-term shocks. If you remember, we launched the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility just after the COVID-19 crisis, which was quite successful, and we managed to design and disperse in one year. Right now, we have also launched the Crisis Response Initiative in response to the rising fuel and food prices due to the unjust war in Ukraine. And this basically has meant that we have been trying to make our responses even more agile and also to address the very short-term type of uh, crisis. For example, let me um, put you some examples of what we have been doing. Um, The Family Farming Development Programme in Niger which was very much related to um, supporting the rehabilitation of the 22 watersheds, uh, all contributing to soil and water conservation, um, combination of mechanical treatments and biological treatments. And it was very much also targeted to addressing another of the big crises that we have right now, which is the climate crisis. So we are seeing in the media that this current situation is being seen as a convergence of crises. What we're seeing from IFAD actually is that the current environment is extremely uncertain. The visibility for farmers and generally for developed and developing economies is becoming more uncertain in the very short term. So that really makes us uh, need to rethink and address how we are going to be able to, to set up our programs to respond to these multiple and more accelerating crises.
2: As president of IFAD, what, what would you say is your outlook for the future of the organization moving forward? What changes would you be looking to make? How will the focus of IFAD's work
3: evolve? Thank you. So over the last uh, four decades, IFAD has very much focused on uh, public sector loans and, uh, and also on, uh, on a way and a business model by which our donors were contributing through the replenishment and they provide taxpayers money to fund many of our programs. This has evolved over the last years. so now I would say that unlocking private sector funding has become essential in our partnerships And it will be very much uh, uh, the only way to really uh, be able to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement. We need to make sure that we are not only counting on official development assistance, but also trying to mobilize private sector funding. In the past, IFAD did um, program a lot of public-private partnerships Um, by which we were also connecting smallholders to markets as well as um, public sector enterprises with the private sector. I believe that our programming with the private sector and with the private sector window will only increase over the future. And many times uh, what many of our beneficiary countries are asking us is actually how to increase the mobilization of private sector funding and how to channel the greater investment into small-scale agriculture. The fact that IFAD is an IFI can also benefit us in the sense that we can use some of the financial instruments as well as um, our current balance sheet to try to unlock and mobilise a lot of the private sector funding that can be channeled through the smallholders. At the same time, in terms of how IFAD funds itself, over the last years, we got uh, two credit ratings, two very successful credit ratings, two AA pluses, which have enabled us to actually issue uh, bonds with the the private sector and especially with uh, pension funds who really want to invest in the long term of many of the challenges we want to address. IFAD actually works in 16 out of the 17 uh, SDGs, which makes it very attractive uh, for many of these investors. When we see in the press that there's all sorts of uh, bonds, actually IFAD can issue blue bonds, green bonds, SDG bonds, ESG bonds, social bonds, any type of, uh, I would say, main area uh, related to development, IFAD is actually very active on it. So um, these both components, both where IFAD invests its money as well as where IFAD sources its uh, money from, will become very important going forward. We need to make sure that we join forces with the private sector and that we also try to mobilize uh, money from other like-minded institutions, for example, the Global Environmental Facility the global climate fund the adaptation fund so there's also uh, another important pot of money which is coming from the climate from the adaptation to climate change that ifad can also mobilize and this is also what we're hearing from many of the heads of state i was recently uh, meeting uh, a number of heads of state in different fora in in africa and many of them were saying you have been very successful and we are very happy with your with your current work in, in agriculture, with smallholders, everything that you're really having and making a difference and making an impact in their lives. At the same time, we have a bigger challenge right now, which is also climate change. So many of them are asking us uh, how IFAD can also support their effort in tackling many of these shocks. For example, recently with the floods in, floodings in, in, in Pakistan, Even if they had done everything correctly on productivity of smallholders, setting up the right irrigation systems, putting in place everything that was asked in order to to achieve rural transformation, just with one shock, everything was wiped out. So it's important that we make sure that we continue investing in resilience, including in in resilience to climate change.
2: And what do you think will evolve for donor agencies moving forward, giving their need to adjust to these continuous
3: crises that we're experiencing? That's a very good question because, actually, um, I was recently with many of the heads of agencies and the Deputy Secretary, the UN Deputy Secretary-General, and one of the issues was once more this balance between, I would say, humanitarian, short-term development response and long-term investment in, in resilience. And it's very clear that we need the three of them. We need to make sure that the social safety nets and the short term response, humanitarian response continues to be there. We continue investing in it. But it's very clear that that's not going to solve the long term challenge of hunger and poverty. We need to make sure that the underlying causes, the root causes, we also continue investing in them. So in that sense, I, I would say that greater cooperation between the different agencies and the different goals will become very important. Also, the understanding that continuing investing only in humanitarian assistance will not be enough. We will just continue drifting from crisis to crisis. And we need to make sure that donor countries, also private sector populations, understand the importance of addressing many of the structural issues and investing in medium-term resilience.
2: Alvaro, thank you very much for joining us on Farms Food Future.
1: Thanks to Brian and EFAD's new president, Alvaro Alario. Up next, we sit down with Associate Vice President Satu Santala to talk about the 13th replenishment cycle.
0: You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Allison Lecce here in the studio with Michelle Tang. We turn now to a familiar face here at EFAD, Satu Santala. Satu is Associate Vice President of the External Relations and Governance Department. She is responsible for partnerships and global engagement, and she oversees relations with EFAD's member states.
1: I sat down with Satu to talk about EFAD's upcoming funding cycle. Listen as she tells us about EFAD's approach in the
4: new year. Michelle, thank you for that question. EFAD is a fund that has a very high level of concessionality in our funding to our member states. And therefore, um, our fund needs to be replenished uh, regularly so that we can continue our work. So, this is done through a replenishment consultation every three years. And we're just going into the next one of these cycles. And that consultation is organized over a series of meetings where we focus on first, of course, mobilizing additional resources for the fund. But then uh, also, very importantly, accountability for results that have been funded on resources that member states have provided to the fund earlier. And then also agreeing what the results framework for going forward is. And then the third element is a dialogue on, on policies and priorities. So this is really the way for members to set the direction for the fund. So. This is basically the three purposes of the replen- uh, replenishment process and uh, we're really excited to, to start the next one just now.
1: Thank you for the explanation, uh, Satu, and also for setting the context uh, for our listeners. Now considering the ongoing crisis uh, and the pre-consultation that just happened last week, what do you see emerging as uh, priorities for donors right now? Uh, How can EFAT leverage its unique identity uh, to respond, uh, both as a UN agency and also as an IFI, an international financial institution?
4: Well, I would say that the conversation that we had with our members last week, but also other conversations um, globally in the recent months, have really emphasized that the ongoing food crisis and the impact of the war in Ukraine have really Um, made it clear that food and food systems, they need to be addressed, they need to be invested in. And that came out clearly that, that and of course, IFAD uh, being active in this space, clearly donors saw that IFAD needs to step up in this role. There was uh, quite a clear call for for support to increase local production and building resilience of that uh, food production and, and value chains. And this is really the work that IFAD does. And the need for IFAD to continue uh, focusing on building resilience through longer-term solutions alongside short-term emergency responses. And, and this is really something that today, in today's world, is in high demand. And this is also linked to building the resilience of food systems to the recurring crisis, increasing frequency of crisis that is in particular made worse by, by climate change. And this also we heard very strongly from our member states that addressing climate change and in particular adaptation in, in smallholder agriculture is really a, a big priority. And uh, and it's very much linked, again, to to building uh, resilience and food security going forward. Among other priorities, we do see a continued focus around fragility, the impact of conflicts on food security, and uh, how to increase the support for the poorest and most um, marginalized uh, communities. There's a high demand for IFAD to be ambitious on gender equality as well as nutrition in order to make our investments more impactful to build resilience for people and for communities. These are areas where IFAD is active and and can really do more uh, given our unique identity. There's a high demand for funding or financing in these areas And there's been a a consistent underinvestment in in agriculture, in developing countries uh, in past years, and we really need to step up going forward. The way IFAD works, because we're an IFI, so International Financial Institution, so the core resources that our member states provide us through the replenishment, we can then also crowd in more more of other investments, and we act uh, as an assembler of development finance. And we want to increase our role uh, in this in this space, including working with the private sector. And I think this is something where we will have a lot of uh, interesting conversations with our member states during our replenishment process as well. So these are some of the things that that we see coming through from our member states, and that we're eager to address in our replenishment.
1: Thank you so much for that, Satu, and for the very comprehensive um, answer to EFAD's really unique role. With the new year around the corner, what gives you hope in 2023? And what would you like to say to those uh, working together to fund rural development?
4: Thank you. Well, I'm a very optimistic person by nature. So there's a lot of things that give me hope, of course, against the background of a a serious situation and a a food crisis but I do think that what the crisis has done it really has placed more attention and uh, more attention on food and food security and the realization that food systems really are failing people and the planet and that we need to act so there's that that realization that makes action possible and I think if I'd entering our replenishment negotiations in this this time gives us the opportunity that member states can use the ifad replenishments to uh, to make commitments and take action specifically to increase food production and and improve food systems in developing countries so so this is of course one of the messages for colleagues working uh, together for rural development but more broadly also, I think that we do need to, to make every effort to really invest in those longer-term solutions because, you know, just reacting to crisis is not enough. And, and really, we need to invest. Of course, for all of us and, and for donors, it is important that we avoid the costs of not collaborating. So if we duplicate or if we sort of uh, compete for resources, that's that's not conducive. And uh, therefore, we think that, you know, it's, it's really useful to have informal platforms uh, now more than ever to really convene and to discuss and exchange information. And that's where we see the value uh, very much of the global donor platform for rural development. And we think that this platform is, is really doing a great job of bringing all of us together. And we're very happy IFAD to be part of this initiative and to host its secretariat these conversations have really been good and sort of moving moving us forward in the same direction. The one thing I would say that, it, that we have to remember doing uh, also going forward is to include voices of small-scale farmers, youth, indigenous people, civil society when we discuss um, how we address rural development and how we, we fund it. There's, their perspectives and experiences really must inform the solutions and the actions we take. Satu, thank you
1: very much for joining us today uh, in our Global Donor Platform segment uh, on
0: EFAD's farm food future. Thank you.
4: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: That was Satu Santala talking to Michelle. Interestingly enough, Satu is familiar with the Global Donor Platform through her previous position at the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. IFAD is both a board member of the platform and a host of the platform secretariat right here in our Rome office. Michelle, since you work with the platform, why don't you tell us a bit about it?
1: Sure thing. The Global Donor Platform for Rural Development is a partnership network of 40 influential donors, and the membership aims to accelerate progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals through collective influencing and knowledge sharing so that donors can successfully lobby for policies and increase funding in agriculture and rural development. In the studio, we have Maurizio Navarra here to tell us more. Hello, Maurizio. You're the coordinator of the platform secretariat. What could you tell us about the donor platform and why should this matter to our listeners?
5: It's great to be here, Michelle. In a nutshell, the platform is an informal forum where like-minded donors lobby and share information and knowledge for increased investment in food systems with a view to accelerating progress towards the sustainable development goals. Over the past two years, we have been heavily engaged in the food systems agenda organizing advocacy initiatives and events, producing flagship reports, and the Donor Declaration on Food Systems Transformation. We also look at how donors can keep their focus in these times of crisis and war. Looking forward, we are moving to two main work streams. The first is on donor harmonization at the country level, where we look at how donors can optimize their assistance through better coordination and policies, strategies, and programs. The other, still under development, is on sharpening our reasoning around the financial architecture of food systems and seeing what needs to change. Donor funding is a tiny fraction of the financial resources available globally on food systems. Through our unique platform space, we aim to make the most out of such catalytic funding for agriculture and rural development.
1: Thanks, Maurizio. So what I'm hearing is that if we don't make sure all donors are pulling in the same direction, we may not be able to tackle the root causes of poverty and hunger.
0: With so many conflicts arising in the world right now, we turn to some of our donors to hear about the issues that are most important to them at this crucial time. We ask them, what keeps you up at night?
6: So here in Australia, we're experiencing some of the worst flooding in our history. Uh, We've got tens of thousands of people who've been displaced, uh, massive impacts to uh, natural and agricultural systems. And this is happening as a direct consequence of climate change-related extreme rainfall events. Every, every time that one of these floods uh, occurs in, in Australia you know, over the last five years, I, I hear commentators saying, you know, this is a one in 100 year event. When you start hearing that every year, you realize something is wrong. Two years ago, it wasn't flooding. It was fire. In a single summer, we lost an area of forest the size of Germany. Just think about that. You know, here in Canberra, in the nation's capital, we were surrounded by burning forest for four months. We had the worst air pollution of any city in the world, and we're talking about a city that's usually one of the most clean and pristine in the world. So it was a really dramatic and shocking reminder our climate is warming and it's changing. And that's affecting not just the biological systems around us, but our agricultural systems. The ability for us to grow food, the ability for us to remain food secure, they're even worse in the Pacific. You know, we are working with some countries and some communities that are literally losing their land to the sea as sea levels rise. These are peoples that have lived on islands in the Pacific for thousands of years, and their homes are simply being swallowed up. They can no longer practise their traditional agriculture. They can no longer eat their traditional foods. The other thing that keeps me up at night, Michelle, is the conflict in Ukraine. You know, apart from the, the direct and tragic human consequences that we're seeing, uh, you know, this is happening at a time when the price of food has actually been going up now for more than a year. We're already uh, at a point in time where food is, is, is really very, very unaffordable for, for a lot of people. And this, uh, this conflict uh, and the impacts of this conflict, not just on the direct supply of stable crops, but on the price of the inputs to fertiliser, going to have a profound impact. So look, let's see how this plays out. But my sense is that we are closer than perhaps we have ever been in the last 15 years to uh, a major food security crisis.
7: Right now, it's the conflict in Ukraine and the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. But it's also the massive repercussions on poor and hungry people all over the world. So we're seeing skyrocketing food, energy and fertilizer prices. And it's making people in Africa and the Middle East even more vulnerable and more desperate. That's what keeps me up at night because it doesn't need to be that way.
8: A lot of things keep me up at night. I think a lot, a lot of us in, in the agricultural development community overall, are being kept up by the urgency of the current food price spikes. We've got hunger hotspots in in some parts of the world, such so as Ethiopia, Nigeria, and this will probably be made worse by the crisis in Ukraine. And I guess you know, for for somebody like me, I grew up in Pakistan and have done development work for for a while now. And we have the privilege of, of remove and, and sort of being able to flit in and out of uh, some of these hotspots or these situations. But knowing or experiencing the deprivation that, that people across the world face and that we could do something about it, it's certainly something that, that bothers me, and if not, keeps me up at night.
9: I watched the launch of the global report on food crisis yesterday, and I'm still shocked by the unimaginable number of 193 million people that experience execute food insecurity around the world last year. An increase of an astonishing 40 million people compared to 2020. With COVID-19, the climate crisis and the war in Ukraine, the situation is already even worsening day by day. So these issues keep me up at night and there is at least some hope. I consider the strengthening of coordination among donors, along with the mobilization of responsible investment in food systems as the most crucial area. And that is where the Global Donor Platform has a leading role to play. I'm very pleased that we released an excellent white paper last month, which as a follow-up to the Food Systems Summit, outlines the ways in which donors can support the necessary food systems transformation and thereby address the unacceptable current situation I describe and a situation we are all aware of.
1: That was a sneak peek into how just a few of the many donors in the platform feel about the state of our world today. We still have eight years to accomplish the SDGs, and the donors are hard at work to help make this happen. Stay tuned to hear more about what they're doing to address these issues.
0: If you want to hear more from us, please tune in to any of our 39 podcasts and over 350 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. Episode 38 was all about biodiversity, and in episode 37, we talked about COP27, otherwise known as the Africa COP. And next month, we're highlighting an important yet underrated group in the climate fight, indigenous peoples. We'll be back in a minute with more from the donors. This is Farms
1: Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, here with Alison Lecce. We just heard from a few platform donors about the issues that keep them up at night, but what are they doing to address these issues?
0: The platform's donors come from all areas of development, from financial institutions to intergovernmental organizations and foundations to development agencies and think tanks. They may prioritize different goals, but they come together through the platform to coordinate their policies and strategies, share knowledge, and identify emerging issues.
1: Up first, we're headed to Canberra, Australia, to speak with Tristan Armstrong, Senior Sector Specialist of Agricultural Development and Food Security at Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Tristan is also a co-chair of the Global Donor Platform. Now what is being done about these fast-changing issues, especially um, in tackling climate change by way of transforming our food systems?
6: In short, Michelle, not nearly enough. Look, as a global, global community, we urgently need to build more resilient and less destructive agricultural systems. Not only is agriculture being massively and disproportionately impacted by direct effects of climate change, but it's also one of the greatest contributors to the problem. So we need to ensure that we change the way we engage with this planet as a global community. We, in the, the developed world, need to pay the real price for the food that we eat. And we need to create policy settings that sustain productive capacity of the planet rather than provide incentives to destroy things simply because it's making a profit. We need to be thinking long term. We need to be thinking collectively. We need to be ensuring that the incentives are in place to promote better and more responsible behaviour. We're helping people with more targeted and efficient use of agricultural inputs, better access to finance and improved market opportunities, but we really need to do a whole lot more in that space. And, and so I think Australia and other donors are really beginning to think much more deeply about this and are realising that, you know, we are not gonna achieve impact at a global scale unless we work much smarter and much more closely with one another to see change happen. There's also so much more that we can do to improve you know, other elements of our agricultural system. We have the technology. You know, we need to share that technology more effectively. We need to, to work much better collectively to, to really strengthen our systems. The use of, of agricultural chemicals and, and, and other ways in which we can improve the regulatory system to protect people in the environment. You know, these are things that we know we can do now. We need to take action. We need to take initiative. And we need to work together to do that.
1: You are also co-chair of the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, uh, which is a network and partnership of global donors. How does this world complement with your work in climate change?
6: Yeah, look, as as obviously the name suggests, you know, uh, here in the platform, our core focus is rural development. We in the platform have been bringing together key global donors for almost 20 years around these issues. Uh, We meet and exchange information. We also ensure that these issues are high on the political and development agendas um, of our our respective governments and of the global community. Co-chairing the platform allows me to work closely with many other donors. A network such as ours can play a key role in coordinating and influencing donor action. And this could ultimately make a difference not just in my work tackling rural development and climate change in the Southwest Pacific and Southeast Asia, but for all of our members and the work that they do in their own communities and their own region.
0: That was Tristan Armstrong from Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Stay tuned as we head over to our partners in the European Commission. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce here with Michelle Tang. We just had a look at what's happening in Australia with one of the Donor Platform's co-chairs, Tristan Armstrong.
1: We now head to Brussels to talk with another of our co-chairs, Conrad Vine, who also serves as a policy officer in the European Commission. We were also joined by the Deputy Head of the Commission's Directorate General for International Partnerships, Willem Althoff.
0: Listen as Willem tells us about the European Commission.
10: Thanks. Yes, uh, European Commission. It's it's, it's an, uh, a donor, of course, in in the world. But uh, I think we're more than a donor. We we're also providing quite some policy guidance and discussing about policies uh, with with others in in the world. So um, I, I would think we have two major roles. One is to work with our partner countries in order to improve uh, the sustainability of agri-food systems in the world. The second is is to engage in evidence-based discussions with many stakeholders in the world: farmers, uh, researchers. Um, with 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 policymakers in order to to do the right things for for the people and for the planet. That requires us uh, to do a lot of coordination work. Currently, we work in in about 70 countries very closely on agri-food system and rural development questions. We also coordinate a lot with, uh, let's say, our our colleagues within the the European Commission. We also coordinate a lot with our our, uh, colleagues in in the Agricultural uh, Director General or or the Director General that deals with consumer questions and, and, and food safety, for instance. So coordination is part of our work within the Commission, but also outside. And that is where the Global Donor Platform on Rural Development is so important. What we do as, as a donor and what makes us a bit unique is that we have a multi-annual perspective. We usually work on the basis of budgets and, and programs for a period of four to seven years. And we've just gone through an exercise of this programming for the next couple of years in 2021. And uh, we will be working with 50 to 70 partner countries on aspects of uh, food systems, uh, 50 in in more detail, 70 in a little bit more extensive way. And um, that, uh, so we have in front of us quite a a program of uh, of support and uh, we would like to do that in a coordinated manner.
11: Could you tell us about the challenges you face? What does it take to overcome these obstacles?
10: Well, there are many challenges and I think I will highlight three terms of our daily work and the work that we do on in order to to improve the functioning of, of agri food systems and that now three challenges i said first we have an information challenge i think there's no shortage of information but there is on the other hand probably too much information that is not always organized very well and we are confronted with with sometimes too many provisions of of information and uh, we need a bit of streamlining. We have excellent organisations in in the world and that is why we ask them to do some of that that streamlining indeed of of the information. But I still think we can do that much better. That refers to information about what is happening on food insecurity in the world. Conrad made reference to the global report on food crisis. I think that is an excellent example of where we came together with, with 14 different actors to to. Streamline all that information and bring everything together in uh, an organized manner. Second is the um, the challenge around coordination. As I mentioned before, there, there are many actors in uh, in the food security and the food systems sphere. There are many demands for coordination, and it requires a number of stable platforms in which to do that, uh, where we can meet with uh, with these actors and the, the global donor platform is 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 a very valuable one where where donors meet but sometimes also with with others and the third is a bit of a political point, And that is that in general people, and, and that, that includes our politicians, they, they expect very quick results and uh, very easy success stories, while the reality on the ground is, is very, very difficult sometimes. There's a bit of a mismatch there and the management of that expectation is one of the, the challenges that, um, that I think we face. And again, I think when we uh, tackle challenges together, we can probably do that uh, much better.
11: Conrad, the European Commission is a board member of the Global Donor Platform and you're also co-chair of the platform. How does this
9: complement your work? As European Commission, we coordinate our policies and programmes closely with our member states. At the same time, we absolutely need such coordination and exchanges among the donor community at a global level. And the Global Donor Platform has clearly a crucial role to play in this. I'm very thankful for all the valuable work the platform is doing, including through its three thematic working groups, as well as through its publications and events. Concluding, I hope there, that there are more donors that will see the benefits of the platform and join us in the spirit that we are stronger and more efficient if we coordinate.
1: That was Conrad and William from the European Commission. Thanks to Luca Cantili for this
0: report. Up next, we head over to some of our donors from the foundations and NGO sector.
1: This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang here in the studio with Alison Leche. We continue on our tour of the global donor platform to two donors from the nonprofit and NGO world. Karen Smaller is a co-founder of Ceres 2030 and currently executive director of the Shamba Center for Food and Climate. And Ahmad Bahalim is the Senior Program Officer in Agricultural Development at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.
0: Our reporter Monique Amar asked them what we can do to address poverty and hunger at policy levels. We can help people
7: by investing in three big areas. The first is investments or interventions on the farm that will help directly improve productivity and the incomes of the poorest. The second is improving storage and services that farmers need to help them move the food they grow to markets. And the third thing was that if we want all these other things to work, we have to empower the excluded by ensuring that every person has the right or gets the right to an education, a decent livelihood, and a political voice. So without those basic things, None of these other investments will work.
8: Sure. I mean, so the the urgency of the humanitarian crisis is real. And that's probably what we need to take care of first. But in the long term, we have to develop an agricultural development system that delivers on these crises. Uh, They are preventable and they just require a bit of forethought and investment. So the last few years, the the, the UN Food and Agricultural Organizations told us that conflict, economic downturns, and climate change are moving the trend line on hunger in the wrong direction. And the only real way to respond to that is to to invest in in agricultural development.
0: So clearly, we need to continue with agricultural development and build resilience to protect against crises like the ones we're experiencing now. But... Practically speaking, is ending hunger a realistic goal? Do we even have the resources as a global community to do this?
8: This is a realistic goal. As of 2015, with the Sustainable Development Goals, we have very, very specific targets. Of them, you know, we have a very ambitious goal in the case of Sustainable Development Goal 2, uh, to end hunger by 2030. And then within that, we have targets such as on small-scale producer productivity, income, and sustainability in the form of SDGs. and 2.4. So by being this specific um, and thinking through how these kinds of specific smaller targets lead to bigger goals, for example, SDG2, the goal to end hunger, I think we, we make these things more feasible and more realistic. So rather than talking in broad generalities, we can talk about things that are specific, that are measurable, that are realistic, that are time bound and that are fundamentally achievable.
7: So I was part of a a team of 86 researchers from 23 countries who produced this very clear and convincing roadmap for the most effective ways to end hunger, including how much it would cost to end hunger and to do it in an environmentally sustainable way. The project was called Series 2030 Sustainable Solutions to End Hunger. So, our study found that we need an extra $33 billion per year until 2030 to end hunger, double people's incomes, and protect the climate. It's peanuts. For an extra $11 per person living in the industrialised world, we could bring an end to hunger within our reach and to do it
0: sustainably. If we have all the information necessary to end food insecurity, what are the actions and priorities that we need to focus on in order to actually eliminate hunger?
8: Although we have the resources, um, we haven't allocated them to, to achieve this goal yet. So that's probably an important challenge. And the truth, although we have good goals, targets and indicators, we actually don't have the data. So since about 2015, when we agreed to these targets, indicators and goals that I mentioned, the donor community quite quickly realized that we weren't um, able to measure where we were at and we didn't have a plan to get where we needed to be. So we've been working together in this group to, to build this roadmap through the the Roadmap Working Group and and support from our colleagues at the platform, we, on the donor side, have made quite a bit of progress in terms of actually having a plan, being able to track how we're collectively making progress towards it. And to, to go back to your earlier points of, you know, are these kinds of ambitious goals or targets realistic or are they feasible? Yes, they are, as long as we have some sort of plan to deal with it, and some sort of way to track what kind of progress we're collectively making. So for that, we're definitely grateful to, to the platform and, and to eFab for hosting the platform.
7: So add more resources, spend the money better. This means the money has to go through existing financing mechanisms. Organizations like IFAD have to get more money and to channel that money to the people who need it. We also need platforms like the Global Donor Platform that helps bring donors together and make sure that they know what each other are doing and that they coordinate their actions better. We also need coalitions like the Zero Hunger Coalition that was launched at the UN Food Systems Summit last year to help align activities or actions better, and to advocate for more and better spending. And we need the private sector, because we cannot raise this money without the involvement of the private sector. All these things together, and we can get the action we need to achieve zero hunger.
0: That was Monique Amar talking to Ahmad Bahalim and Karen Smaller. You can find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development at www.donorplatform.org. Up next, we switch
1: gears to take a look at gender equality in the world today.
0: We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce here with Michelle Tang. Roughly 30 years ago, the global 16 Days campaign launched to raise awareness and call for an end to gender-based violence. Fast forward to today, it is one of the most widely recognized and longest-running campaigns for women's rights.
1: We took a closer look at the issue of gender-based violence by talking with an expert in the field. Dr. Linda Mayu works with empowerment methodologies for community-led sustainable livelihood development and gender justice.
0: In other words, she creates methods or action plans to combat gender inequality from the household level to community and policy levels. The thought process behind this work is that gender equity not only helps women and girls, but also promotes development in all aspects of society. Dr. Mayu played a role in the development of the gender action learning systems methodology that is frequently used by EFAD's gender team. I spoke with Dr. Mayu about how we can mitigate and prevent gender-based violence at all levels of society. Listen as she tells us first about its impacts on development and the status of women in society.
12: I mean it it basically forms the backdrop to Most forms of of gender inequality, even where violence is not actually physical or enacted, it provides a backdrop of general sort of fear and avoidance. And that affects practically all women, including us, I think. Those sorts of things, um, gender-based violence affects not only whether women can work at all um, beyond unpaid household work, It also affects the type and location of that work and also their ability to network with other women and also to mix with men. So this seriously affects the viability and the sustainability and also the profitability of their own economic activities. Gender-based violence in the household also affects the ways that their income are used and their ability to invest in property or even use their income for economic activity at all, rather than needing to use it for the household. It's also that the potential for violence is always there if the woman doesn't behave herself. So there's a lot of self-censorship there on women's part, which seriously affects their own economic activities. And then the all-pervasive social attitudes mean that women are prevented often from entering any male space like markets, even walking along roads, transport. And this also seriously constrains, constrains the types of activities that women or girls can undertake. And one of the issues is that the in the policy environment um, where women violence against women isn't really, there, there's no real measure against violence against women, And then women don't really have anywhere to,
0: to go. We know that equality is only achieved when it is addressed at both the household level and the community level. What can be done at each of these levels to prevent, eliminate and mitigate violence against women and girls? Okay, I think
12: actually that the different levels, that means from individual confidence and self-censorship right up to global policy levels, are all interconnected. And those also mean that the global policy levels, all those things affect a lot what happens in the family. Um, So I think it's important first to put the household and the community level within that broader framework and make sure that there are linkages between them. Um, But that said, unless policy level changes are backed by changes directly at household and community level, then they remain unimplemented. Without working directly at household level and community level, whatever you do at the policy level is unlikely to have that much effect. And then the household level change needs to be linked with community level action because households are just one part of women's lives and men's lives. There's also the peer pressure from friends. There's the local leaders and traditional leaders who are giving counselling. So, it's not an either or It's not an either policy macro level or household level or community level. It's really an issue of linking those levels up and having strategies that, that, that link the, the household level changes and experiences right up
0: into policy level and back down again. I want to shift gears a little bit now. Mm-hmm. The gender team at EFAD regularly refers to and implements household methodologies such as the gender action learning system that you're very experienced in. How exactly do these methodologies work, and why are they so useful for mitigating gender-based violence?
12: Firstly, I should stress that GALS is used by women and men within households and the wider family, but it didn't actually start as a household methodology. In most places, it's used as an integrated and inclusive methodology that links different levels most processes that i've been involved in start with women and men as individuals and then work out from there works with them to then develop household level plans and visions and and actually track how they're doing so the household methodologies that i've been involved in are Um, not really going to households, they are having either direct contact with individuals, as in the case of the FALS process that I'm involved in at the moment with Ifad in Malawi, and then those individuals that we contact are then working with their families. And that seems really quite successful from the, the, the start that we've had. Um, that people within the households didn't really know what their spouses or their children, what their dreams were, what they were really aiming at. And then through promoting that greater understanding, the whole issue of violence and so on dissolves. I mean, a lot of the household-based violence really comes from general frustration with life, with the external environment but also complete lack of understanding and the fact that people just don't sit down together and discuss what they want. So the household methodologies work to, particularly in pictorial form, to help people really understand each other much better. And that means every member of the household.
1: That was Dr. Linda Mayu. You can learn more about her work at www.gamechangenetwork.com.
0: Up next, environment reporter Kasa Alam brings us another story from the front line of climate change.
1: This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, here in the studio with Alison Leche. Cyclones that hit Bangladesh are exceptionally devastating because of the country's position in the Bay of Bengal. This unique position channels winds and storms into a narrow path and increases their destructive power.
0: It's not just about 100-mile-an-hour winds. In the southern lowlands, where many river deltas meet the sea, storm surges cause waves that can reach heights of 6 or 7 meters. They wash away everything in their path for kilometers, killing dozens and displacing thousands each time. And climate change is increasing the frequency of these extreme cyclones.
1: Kaza traveled to southern Bangladesh to see how an EFAT project is helping people cope by improving coastal defenses and giving school buildings another useful purpose.
13: This is Bangladeshi School. It's great. You've got kids playing cricket, kids hanging out, some football, and there's a school over there. But it's not just a school, actually. They've designed this place in a way so it also becomes a cyclone shelter. Let's go in and have a little look. The school is gorgeous. Bangla books, wooden desks and chalkboards. A place of learning, a place of kids laughing. You wouldn't think it's also a sanctuary against extreme weather, but it is. Every year, world data studies show Bangladesh is hit by three to five cyclones. The country is prone to cyclones because of its location in the Bay of Bengal, meaning people have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. So tell me where we are, Mr. Mihir. Yeah, it is uh, Bhuvin Baja Cyclone Shelter. It is
10: one of the 39 uh, cyclone shelters which were built. It is uh, used by
13: uh, primary school as also. The last major cyclone to cause devastation to Bangladesh was Cyclone Amphan in 2020. Thankfully, it didn't hit this school, but people were told to come just in case.
11: Yes,
10: people uh, generally, we uh, arrange Uh, some uh, volunteers who uh, tell them there is depression, there is cyclone, so uh, please go to the cyclone shelter. So people generally come to that three or four or five uh, hours before, close the door and uh, windows. So it's there, uh, yeah, safe.
13: And it's not just people that you protect here, is it? It's also animals?
10: Uh, People generally brings their uh, cattle, and uh, dark etc with them and they try to keep shelter in the downstairs downstairs
13: in a cyclone everything gets washed away wind speeds can reach up to 200 kilometers an hour meaning families try to protect everything including prized possessions like cattle these schools are designed so livestock can survive at the base with the classrooms doubling up above as shelter for families There's power for cooking, lights and energy, which all come from solar panels on the roof. It's cleverly designed with a well for water always next to the shelter. The school has been tough to see. It's beautiful, but also quite eerie. It felt like it could have been part of a horror film. And I'm sure that during a storm, it has caused some scares. You can't stop cyclones hitting Bangladesh. So what people are trying to do instead is reduce the damage they cause to towns and villages instead. My next destination has a clever system of wave breakers right in the middle of lush green rice paddy fields. Well, if my car makes it, that is. We've had to ditch the cars. So we're not gonna be using the car then. Guess I'll have to go on foot. Not a good day to wear suede boots.
14: This is what we're here to see today, this bit. Yeah, so these are called the swamp trees. Yeah. They are surrounding a fish sanctuary. We'll hear a bit more about that later. But these uh, trees are basically, they're keeping in mind the monsoon season when they will stop the wave action from being too strong. Talk to me for a moment. When you say wave
13: action, what do you actually mean? Like, like is it literally wave upon wave that comes
14: crashing over the whole area? So if we, if you look at the landscape for a moment yeah if you remove the trees you see just a flat area the waves they're caused by the wind blowing across the water surface and from yeah from the distance they would come uninterrupted so they'd get some serious force some serious, yeah they would get a lot of uh, momentum going and then hit the villages over there for example with full force i see how fast would they go do you know I would not know how fast they would go, but the, it's usually the height of the waves that. The we, height of the yeah. wave.
13: Right, I see it just crashes over, and and that's, that's what not, destroys so the, the building. That's the speed. That's yeah. the
14: problem. It's the like the height, the energy. That's all. Without the wa- without the brakes, yeah, they uh, would just have all this energy going. So that just sort of slows it down, dip, dissipates yeah. it. Yeah, it dissipates. I mean, it hits these trees, and here the, you would see smaller waves, basically.
13: It's an ingenious idea and something that I'm really impressed by, and it's helped people be more secure in their homes. When we have those floods, and we've heard these floods are huge. We've got the waters coming down from the Himalayas, covering the whole area, up to like, what, five feet, so up to my shoulders? And then, <laughs> These trees, what they do is they break it up. They break up those waves of water. So actually it dissipates the water, makes the impact less, and then obviously we'll have less height of water hitting the the villages, hitting their homes, and it saves more people. So they're kind of acting as barriers, as obstructions, but also they are in line with this natural beauty. So it's a perfect way of keeping the heritage of this place, but also protecting people. But the wave breaks have a second purpose as well. The trees are shaped into a swamp forest with a little fishery inside. Right, we're just getting to the swamp forest now, which is... uh, which is where we need to be. This is what we need to see. And it's pretty cool, isn't it? Let's be honest. So this is inside all those trees that we saw, and it's a protected area where there's fish growing now, and then the locals are actually using this fish, they're eating them, but then they're also using them as a business as well. And also, apart from all that, it's just really pretty as well, It's just really nice, look at it. In the middle of all this rice crop and rice fields, a little oasis. It really is so peaceful. And the shade is welcome to break up the 30 degree baking heat. I've come to meet the man who has the lucky job of managing this fish sanctuary.
15: We have put a lot of impediments here, things like bamboo poles, thorny branches, and put up some flags to send a clear sign that people should not trespass here. If they do, there will be clear consequences, like fines or even jail, as well as various social sanctions. That's why these warning flags are here.
13: So, did you. Put the fish in, or were the fish already here and now they're just being protected?
15: When we first created this refuge, you see, fish from the fields surrounding this area sought shelter. The fish found a safe place here, but they naturally ended up coming here.
13: And how do they make money, and has that money actually gone up because of their sort of ownership
15: of it now? Members reported that, Compared to the year when we began, their incomes have been increasing two- or threefold every year. The reason for this increase is that the fish is able to spawn here.
13: It's amazing to hear how this small little oasis in the middle of the fields has led to so much opportunity and success for the people around here. So I'm going to meet some of the people who really rely and depend on this water body or bill as it's known in Bangla. So they've set up a little bit of a, a, a meeting area for me, bringing all their chairs from the village to this fishery water body. I feel quite bad that they've carried their chairs all this way. But then when we sit down in the midday sun, I'm pretty glad they did. Awana Muhammad Monwar Ali.
3: I come
11: from a village very close to this build.
4: As a group, we work to maintain this place. We catch fish, we guard the area, and we take care of these trees.
12: I have five children, three daughters and two sons, one of them with a physical disability. My husband is old and can't work that much. We could barely eat once a day, and I could not send my children to school. I could not bear the cost, but after becoming a member of the Beal users group, we earn more.
7: Before this, all the landlords, money lenders, politically influential
13: people had
12: control over the Beals.
13: Even here, a place at threat from cyclones, there are gangsters trying to rip off hard-working people. For years, there was a local mafia controlling access to the fish sanctuary and deciding who could make money.
11: Before the project came into being, only influential people would control and manage the deals. We used to sneak in to catch fish, but if they caught us, they would beat us
13: up. We had
11: to pay them money to fish, and this project has enlightened us about our rights.
13: How much do they take?
11: These are about 50 acres of land, and the deal was 82,000 taka. We had to raise money from the community to pay, and since we paid this money, then this became our deal and we could use it. But if we stopped paying the rent, then we would lose our right of access. We wouldn't be allowed to even come close to the edge of the deal. We used to save 100 taka a month for the tax. That would mean 1200. 100 taka per year, or they would not allow us to come here. They'd beat us.
13: Wow, if you didn't give them money, what would happen?
11: Sometimes they would bring police to beat us up. The local goons would not allow us to come near, let alone fish.
13: With the help of the local government officers and IFAD, the local mafia has now been pushed out, and the locals take care of this place themselves. It's not perfect, but it does give them a better chance. An extra cash to help their kids go to school. So for yourself, uh, what's it been like? Obviously, you know, this bill that's coming in has been really good, but It's also helped you out, hasn't it? It's helped your daughter as well?
12: Yes, I have two daughters, both of whom can now get an education. The project has helped women like me earn a better income from the Beal and support our families. My son
1: studies chemistry at university. Chemistry. I hope that by getting this education, he can get a good job with a salary.
13: Thank you all. Honestly, thank you so much for your time. As I leave the Beal, I'm torn. I'm shocked to hear about the ugliness of human nature, greed and violence in the face of potential disaster. But I'm also optimistic, because there are people who still want to help.
15: I really like that I'm able to help poor people get access to food and generate viable livelihoods for them. When we started, of the 40 members in our group, 30 had no houses. Now they are all able to start building houses. Some did not have a cow shed. Now they have one. They have invested money in productive land, and this makes me feel really good.
13: Bangladesh is a country that is prone to cyclones, one of the most extreme weather patterns we can face here on planet Earth. And yet, instead of just looking after themselves, people here want to help each other and face things together. Whether it's volunteering to get everyone to the primary school shelter when a storm's about to hit, to saving animals, to even using nature to create simple ways of lessening the damage. This is a resilient country, and one that is not only at the front line against climate change, but at the forefront of adapting to it.
0: That was environmental journalist Casa Alam reporting from Bangladesh. If you want to know more about his reports on EFAD projects and his work in general, you can check his YouTube channel, Casa Vision. That's Q-A-S-A Vision. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 39. Many thanks to our fabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Minetti, and also to our contributors and everyone else who's worked on this program.
1: But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms, Food, Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efat.org podcast. Next month in episode 40, we'll be hearing from our Indigenous Peoples team ahead of the Indigenous Peoples Forum at EFAD.
0: Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast at efad.org.
1: Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast are your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. We'll be back in the new year with more news fresh from
0: the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Allison Lache,
1: and from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at the GDPRD and Efat. Thanks, thanks for listening. For listening.